Hello and welcome back to Film Feeder, a show where I, your film chef extraordinaire Jack Martin, whip up tasty movie treats every week, from the lowdown on the biggest new releases to insightful movie reviews, to feature presentations about some interesting areas of film culture. Now, before we get started on this week's episode, I just want to say how grateful I am for the overwhelming support that has been sent my way after the show made its debut last week. I was certainly nervous about how I would come across, or even if anyone would be interested in listening, but over the last seven days, I've had a lot of people, from close friends and family to complete strangers, just send over some of the most lovely comments about it, which has really gotten my year off to a great start. So thank you all so much, and I hope you stick around and hear what I've got in store over the next 12 months. So that brings me to today's episode, which is going to be largely linked to this week's big cinema release, that being Poor Things, the heavily Oscar-tipped new film from director Yorgos Lanthimos, and starring Emma Stone, for which I'll not only be covering in this week's movie menu, and we'll even have a review for it later on as well, but this week's feature presentation, the section where I dedicate time to exploring some interesting film-related topics, will be covering some of the most essential films in the prosperous career of its lead star. And of course, I'll also be spotlighting many of the week's other releases, whether they're in cinemas or streaming or on demand. And I'll also have a review for last week's Netflix offering, Society of the Snow. But before the show properly gets underway, please do make sure you're giving this podcast a follow wherever you're listening to it so that you can be updated every week with new episodes. And also keep an eye out for other updates on Film Feeder's social channels, including X, formerly known as Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Letterboxd, Snapchat, and more, where you can find it on all of them as just Film Feeder, while on Instagram the handle is Film Feeder Insta, I-N-S-T-A. And if you go to patreon.com slash Film Feeder, you can subscribe to one of the membership tiers and get some exclusive rewards, such as being able to ask a question for an upcoming episode or even suggest or vote on future topics to cover. Right, so now that's all out of the way, let's get right into this week's movie menu. And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. So if you're new to the Film Feeder podcast, this is a section of the show where I take a look at the week's new releases and give a few handy bits of information about them, as well as why they're worth checking out. And as I hinted earlier, the big movie of the week is Poor Things. This is the new film from Greek absurdist filmmaker Yorgos Lanthimos, the director of films like Dogtooth, The Lobster, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and more recently The Favourite, which scored lead actor Olivia Colman an Oscar, and nominations for supporting players Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone. And it's the latter who now leads Poor Things, which Lanthimos directs from a script by The Favourite co-writer Tony McNamara, who also created the recently cancelled historical comedy series The Great, with Al Fanning and Nicholas Holtz, and McNamara in turn adapts the novel of the same name by Scottish writer Alastair Gray, which as in the film is about a young woman named Bella Baxter, played by Stone, who was brought back from the dead by facially scarred scientist Dr Godwin Baxter, played by Willem Dafoe. The twist of this Frankenstein tale, however, is that since Bella was pregnant at the time of her death, 
Godwin has switched her brain with that of her unborn child, which has resulted in Bella having the literal mind of an infant, which over time does start to expand as she grows curious about the world around her, as well as her own sexual desires, which leads to her being whisked away by Caddish lawyer Duncan Wedderburn, played by Mark Ruffalo, on a global adventure where she learns more about herself and how to make her mark in society. Now, I'll be getting into more details later on in the show when I deliver my review on this film, but for now I'll say that it's quite a spectacular experience that's delightfully weird and boasts some stunningly gothic production design and cinematography, as well as Lanthimos's signature dry wit and eccentric method of storytelling, all of which has made it a leading contender during the current awards season, having already won the Golden Lion Trophy at last year's Venice Film Festival, and is expected to score a number of nominations at the Oscars, BAFTAs, and just about every other major awards body. So that's the initial lowdown on Poor Things, which arrives in cinemas nationwide on Friday the 12th of January, and stay tuned later on when I talk a bit more about my overall thoughts on the film. And now onto some of the other films being released theatrically on that same date, including The Boys in the Boat, which is the new film from director George Clooney, who here tells the inspiring story of the University of Washington rowing team, which in the midst of the Great Depression in the 1930s exceeded expectations by becoming a champion squad under the leadership of their coach Al Ulbrichson, played here by Joel Edgerton. And the film charts their progression to the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin, where they represented the United States in the men's eight competition, as well as the lives of some of the rowers, particularly Joe Rance, who is portrayed here by Callum Turner. So, in addition to George Clooney directing, the film is adapted from Daniel James Brown's non-fiction novel by screenwriter Mark L. Smith, known for films like The Revenant and Clooney's sci-fi drama The Midnight Sky. And together they've made a film that seems like a pretty solid choice for anyone wanting something a bit more light-hearted and pleasant to go and check out. In other words, those who might not have the stomach for something as wild and out there as poor things. But nonetheless, it's worth checking out when the film comes to cinemas later this week. Then, if you're in more of an action mood, then Jason Statham is here to fill that need by starring in The Beekeeper. This is the new film directed by David Ayer, who previously made films like End of Watch and Fury, and now heads the tale of Statham's retired operative Mr. Clay, who used to belong to a secretive organisation known as Beekeepers, but nowadays spends his days living peacefully next to his neighbour Felicia Rashad. But one day she ends up falling for a phishing scam and ends up committing suicide as a result, prompting Mr. Clay to go and get his sweet revenge on the company responsible, which involves all sorts of mindless but entertaining Statham action movie goodness, including explosions and gunplay galore. And Sky Cinema is behind its UK theatrical distribution, with it coming to cinemas this Friday before a release on its own streaming platform later on in the year. As if Jason Statham going after a fishing company wasn't enough bonkers action for you, along comes Freaks vs. the Reich, or Freaks Out as it's known in other countries, which is the highly imaginative fantasy drama from Italy that's set in 1943 and sees a group of circus performers born with incredible superhuman abilities. For example, there's a girl who can produce electricity and a man with hypertrichosis, or excessive body hair, who possesses human strength. And they're all eager to leave Europe behind and make it big in America, but oh, no, along comes a six-fingered clairvoyant Nazi to spoil their fun, and he's played by Franz Rogowski, who last year impressed in Ira Sachs's film Passages, and whose character here is desperate to capture an experiment on the superpowered beings to strengthen the Third Reich. So with a premise like that, you can expect some balmy superhero antics by way of Todd Browning's classic horror Freaks, and it too arrives in cinemas on Friday the 12th of January. 
For documentary enthusiasts, The Disappearance of Sheer Height should be right up there on films to watch this week, with filmmaker Nicole Newnham diving into the life and career of the American-born German sexologist and feminist icon, who became known throughout the mid to late 20th century for her provocative studies on then-taboo topics like sex and pleasure, which sadly led to her ostracization from a deeply misogynist society. But with strong reviews following its debut at last year's Sundance Film Festival, and with narration by actor Dakota Johnson, who is also an executive producer on the film, this is a compelling place to start your own research on Sheer Heights if you've somehow never heard of her, as it unfortunately seems to have been designed by the system she spent her life fighting against. So that's The Disappearance of Sheer Height, which also drops in cinemas on Friday the 12th. There's just a little bit of time left for the final big theatrical release of the week, which is the animated family adventure Goldbeak, which was originally produced in China but has now been remodified for Western audiences, with its story about an eagle who was raised among chickens and then sets off on a grand journey to learn more about his roots, in a film that should have parents, especially those with young children, soaring in their seats when it arrives among the flock later this week. Moving on now to the releases coming to the screens inside your home, the big one to lay out on the sofa too is Netflix's action caper, Lift, which is directed by Straight Outta Compton director F. Gary Gray, and stars Kevin Hart as a professional thief who's unexpectedly recruited by his ex-girlfriend Gugu Mbatha-Raw, who also happens to be an FBI agent, to lead an international crew on a daring new heist, one that involves stealing $500 million in gold bars. But here's the twist, the only time that the bars will be over to being stolen is when they're airborne, yes, 40,000 feet in the air during its flight to Zurich, which raises the stakes to literal new heights. So this looks and sounds like a fun high-concept heist movie with plenty of star power, not just from Kevin Hart, but from a supporting cast that also includes Vincent D'Onofrio, Billy Magnuson, Jean Reno, and Sam Worthington. And it should hopefully be a step in the right direction for Netflix, who over the last few years has struggled with the quality of their big-budget original blockbusters, but hope to even the playing field when it drops on the streamer on Friday. Over on Prime Video is a slightly more straightforward action comedy, Roleplay, which stars Emmy-nominated actor Kaylee Cuoco of The Flight Attendant and The Big Bang Theory, and David Oyelowo, who recently starred in Paramount Plus's historic miniseries Lawmen Bass Reeves. They play a married couple with a seemingly normal suburban life who one day decide to spice things up with a little bit of, you guessed it, roleplay, only for him to discover that she actually leads a double life as a deadly assassin and has now drawn the both of them into the firing line. So if you ask me, it sounds like a bit of a laugh, with two very competent actors leading the way, as well as a supporting cast that includes Oscar nominee Bill Nye, and it could well be something you end up checking out from Friday, once again on Prime Video. Also coming to Prime, albeit slightly earlier on Wednesday the 10th, is About My Father, a film that was actually meant to be released theatrically at some point last year by Lionsgate, I believe, only for it to suddenly be yanked from the UK film schedule and cast into the ether, despite it still going ahead with a big screen release in the US, with it only now being dumped onto streaming over here. Now, if you don't know what this film is, it's a comedy co-written by comedian Sebastian Maniscalco, who also stars as a version of himself in a film based very loosely on his own relationship with his real father, who's played here by none other than Robert De Niro, a cantankerous Italian immigrant who shows up to cause chaos during a weekend when Maniscalco is trying to impress the parents of his fiancée. So in terms of De Niro comedies, think of this as less of a slight reversal of Meet the Parents and more of an alternate universe version of Dirty Grandpa, which this film should undoubtedly be more pleasant to sit through, or at least you'll be able to judge for yourself when it arrives on Prime Video this week. 
Finally, if you're seeking something to rent or buy this week, the ever-reliable Signature Entertainment has you covered with the digital release of the new folk horror Lord of Misrule, which is set in a rural English village where Tuppence Middleton plays a newly arrived vicar whose young daughter suddenly disappears during a traditional festival, and during the search unearths some dark secrets about the townsfolk and their rather sinister traditions, which given that one of them is played by the ever-intimidating Ralph Einstein, should be more than enough of a hint that something terrifying is going on. And so it comes from direct to William Brent Bell, who you might know from other horrors like The Boy, Stay Alive, and the notorious found footage movie The Devil Inside. And once again, you can seek it out on digital platforms from today, Monday the 8th. And that about does it for this week's movie menu. Hopefully it's given you more of an idea about what to look forward to over the next seven days, and that it's inspired you to go out and seek some of these films for yourselves, including once again the main topic of this episode, Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things, which, funnily enough, leads right into our feature presentation. <laughs> Yes, Poor Things is the main focus of this week's feature presentation, specifically its lead star Emma Stone, and here I'll be talking about five essential movies from her illustrious career that should give you a clearer idea of the actor's star persona and why she's so good at what she does. Now there are a lot of films of hers to choose from, ranging from big superhero blockbusters to obscure independent films, but the following films I've curated for this list are ones that I feel truly bring out Stone's screen presence, whether it's in comedy or drama or even musical, and I'll also be picking films where she is undoubtedly the lead, or at the very least a co-lead, with a significant focus being on her character and the performance she constructs around it. So that does rule out such films as Birdman, the film that earned the actor her first Oscar nomination, because I feel she's more of a supporting player in a film that's otherwise about Michael Keaton's character. And I'm sorry to say that this also excludes both the amazing Spider-Man movies, because while she is Gwen Stacy is very much a big part of those films alongside Andrew Garfield's Web Slinger, it is him who has a much larger overall focus in the story. So as much as Stone excels in them, she's arguably not the main draw to those particular films. So with that, the first film I'd like to focus on today is the film that arguably brought Emma Stone into the spotlight, that being director Will Gluck's Easy A, an incredibly witty twist on Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic story, The Scarlet Letter, in which Stone plays high school student Olive Pendergast, who makes up a fib about losing her virginity, which soon spreads like wildfire around the school and gives her plenty of unexpected attention. Olive soon decides to lead into her newfound notoriety by setting up a service to help unpopular boys fake losing their own virginities, in exchange for gift cards and other little rewards, which of course soon gets out of hand and forces Olive to confront the lies she has created around herself. Now I actually remember seeing this film in the cinema when it first came out back in 2010, and at the time I had seen Emma Stone in other films before like Superbad and Zombieland, and she was great in those, but this was the film I recall knowing from pretty much as soon as she walked on the screen that this is a movie star in the making. Emma Stone gives such a lively and bubbly comedic performance that's filled with plenty of charm and charisma, which recalls similar star-making teen roles by actors in films by the late John Hughes, who is mentioned by name at several points in the film itself, and and whose own style of teen comedy is very much an influence on both director Will Gluck and screenwriter Burt V. Royal, who collectively create a fun high school universe that's funny and also pretty endearing when it wants to be. 
But it is Emma Stone, with her enthusiastic screen presence and naturally gifted comedic delivery, who sticks out like the burning red letter A in the Scarlet Letter. Even in the cast that includes Amanda Bynes, Thomas Aiden Church, Lisa Kudrow, Malcolm McDowell, and most memorably, Stanley Tucci and Patricia Clarkson as Olive's free-spirited parents, who provide some of the biggest laughs in the film, outside of what Stone brings, of course. So it's a bit of an easy choice for the first film on this list, especially since it's widely considered to be her big breakthrough role, to where she even scored a Golden Glow nomination for her performance. But Easy A really is a perfect place to start with Emma Stone, because it's funny, endearing, and game for just about anything thrown its way, just like Emma Stone herself. And if you're curious about checking out Easy A, as of this episode, it's streaming on Netflix, and is also available to digitally rent or buy through other services. Moving on swiftly now to the second essential Emma Stone film on my list, which is The Croods, the animated adventure from DreamWorks Animation that wasn't the first voiceover role for the actor, having previously supplied a voice for the live-action Marmaduke film in 2010, but it was the first time she was cast in a pretty major role in an animated film. In fact, I believe it was her first animated film period, and had to rely on her re recognisably husky vocal cords more than ever to deliver a meaningful performance, something that ended up making the character even more memorable than how it was written. In the film, Stone plays Eep, the teenage daughter in a family of cavemen living in prehistoric times, and it is her who ends up having a grand curiosity for the greater world outside of her family's sheltered experience, and whose curiosity and attraction to Ryan Reynolds' more evolved caveman guy ends up spiriting her and her family across the prehistoric land in search of a brand new home. The film boasts plenty of DreamWorks Animation's colourful and energetic brand of CG graphics, but it is the characters and the family drama that end up staying with you the most, because the voice voice actors, including and primarily Emma Stone, inject so much warmth and personality into their roles that you really enjoy spending time with this chaotically uncivilized unit, and Stone in particular brings so much of that through a vocal performance that could have easily been two-dimensional and straightforward, but she manages to let loose and allow her wilder side to come out in hilarious and often meaningful ways. Funnily enough, Stone's only other voice role to date is in the sequel to The Croods that came out just a few years ago, but that first film certainly proved that she could bring just as much energy and star power to the recording booth as she can in live action, and hopefully she'll take on more animated gigs in the future because she definitely has the voice for it. For now though, you can hear Emma Stone in The Croods if you go onto Netflix and find it there, or one of the many places it's available to digitally rent or buy, along with its sequel. Next on the list is perhaps the most obvious choice for anyone looking for prototypical Emma Stone movies, but it's such an absolute delight that I honestly don't care that it's been talked to death. It is, of course, La La Land, the endearing musical tribute by Oscar-winning director Damien Chazelle, in which she stars as Mia, the aspiring actor looking for her big break in Los Angeles, who comes across and falls in love with Ryan Gosling's jazz pianist Sebastian. I mean, what is there to say about this movie that nearly everyone has said already about it? It's an utter joy of a movie, filled with toe-tapping musical numbers, colourful cinematography that calls back to the filmography of Jacques Tati, and an absolute adoration for the old-fashioned style of musical that has long since been lost in an age of greatest showman clones. And I think it's a bit of a shame that its legacy is now forever tied to that of Moonlight, after of course its name was mistakenly read out as the best picture win at the Oscars. Because while I definitely think that Moonlight is an excellent movie in its own right, and certainly a worthy winner, I still think La La Land was overall a stronger film and would have been an earned recipient of the award had it been the correct name that was read out. 
But honestly, I think the key to any of it working in the first place is the undeniable chemistry shared between its two leads, with Stone and Gosling having impeccable timing in both their choreography and singing capabilities, which they share so elegantly. And even when they aren't singing, you can feel an unmistakable energy as their relationship goes through a number of highs and lows, right up to its bittersweet conclusion. But between the two, there is something about Emma Stone here that sparkles more than most of her star turns before or since, because there is certainly a confidence and ambition dwelling within her, but also a level of frustration as she keeps getting rejected by casting agents, and ultimately a lack of ego that compels her to root for her love interest stream when it appears he's put it on the back burner, which not only makes the character very likeable and relatable, but also rather human, in a heightened and semi-magical narrative where breaking out into song and dance is a regular occurrence for its inhabitants. So yeah, I know I'm saying nothing new about La La Land as a whole, but in terms of Emma Stone movies, it's impossible for it not to be among your own list of movies to watch her be absolutely astonishing in. As for where you can find it, right now it's only available to stream on Lionsgate Plus, but since that service is due to shut down later this year, your best bet to finding La La Land is on one of the many digital outlets it's available to rent or buy from. For the fourth film, it was a bit of a Sophie's Choice situation, because I had to choose between The Favourite, the historical comedy from Stone's Poor Things director Yorgos Lanthimos, and the tennis drama Battle of the Sexes, directed by Little Miss Sunshine duo Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Farris. Now, both are films that utilise Stone and her on-screen talents very well, and she plays vital roles in both, without which there would honestly be no story in either one. But in the end, I'm going to go with Battle of the Sexes, because for one, I feel it's a less talked about film than The Favourite is, and certainly a more underrated one, but Stone arguably gives the more impressive performance in this film, where she plays tennis icon Billie Jean King opposite Steve Carell's Bobby Riggs, both of whom famously competed against each other in a 1973 exhibition match that was dubbed the Battle of the Sexes by the media. Prior to that match, the film explores King's fight against patriarchal norms in the world of tennis, which included founding the Women's Tennis Association after learning that she and other female players would be getting a fraction of the pay that male players earn, and also her coming to terms with her sexuality, since at the time of this movie she's closeted and married to Larry King, played here by Austin Stowell, but she ends up having an affair with Andrea Riseborough's fictional hairdresser Marilyn, which drudges up some personal conflict that leads to this emotional moment at the ending shared between her and Alan Cummings fashion designer Ted Tinling. Now quite remarkably, this is the only time, as of recording this episode, that Emma Stone has played a real-life person in something. Like, you'd think she'd have been in at least one or two more biopics at this point, but no, this is so far her one and only, which in and of itself makes it a unique film among her list of credits. But she makes the most of it, as Stone here is able to make the character of Billie Jean King her own, and even if you don't know a whole lot about the real King's life and career, the actor lends her incredible empathy as you see the pressures of the time come right down on her, from the misogyny she faces at every turn to being judged for her identity as a gay woman, and you really do root for her not just in the climactic match against Bobby Riggs, but also to finally feel at ease with herself in a world that's against her from the very start. So that's Battle of the Sexes, my fourth film on this list of essential Emma Stone movies, which you can currently stream on Disney+, Plus, or again digitally rent or buy on various other legal websites. And the fifth and final Emma Stone film on this list is her most recent lead performance, before Poor Things of course, and it's none other than Cruella, a film which is often lumped in the pile of live-action Disney remakes that nobody asked for or even needed in their lives. But this take on the iconic 101 Dalmatians villain is one of the very few that actually takes a few notable risks with its storytelling and approach, which make it not just one of the most unique of Disney's divisive trend, but thanks to Emma Stone, also one of the most entertaining. 
directed by Craig Gillespie and co-written by Tony McNamara, who would, as mentioned earlier, go on to write Poor Things, the film tells the wicked origin story of a certain Cruella de Vil, the notorious puppy-skinning fashionista who here is introduced as orphan thief Ella, who soon works her way into the clutches of Emma Thompson's ruthless Baroness, and along the way she invents the persona of Cruella who takes on the Baroness at her own game. As many of you may remember, this was released in cinemas right after they opened again following their closure during the pandemic, which may have contributed to its somewhat muted box office performance, only grossing $233 million worldwide on a budget said to be between $1 and $200 million. Though on a side note, wouldn't it be something if it turned out to have actually cost $101 million? I don't know, I just thought that would be funny. Anyway, the film didn't do that great financially, but it is fondly remembered for a few things, one of them being the dazzling and Oscar-winning costume designs by Jenny Beaven, who also created the costumes for Mad Max Fury Road and also won an Oscar for that film, and the two lead turns by an awesomely evil Emma Thompson, and of course Emma Stone, who, as she did with Billie Jean King, puts her own spin on the iconic character, bringing out her devilish side while still finding some humanity in the person who would, again, go on to plan making a fur coat out of Dalmatian puppy skin. As Cruella, Stone is at her most rambunctious, leaning heavily into the character's taste for over-the-top camp, as well as her appetite for the most creative of clothing, and she is having an absolute blast just firing on all cylinders while an awesomely 70s soundtrack plays constantly, all of which make Cruella its own separate entity that, unlike other live-action Disney remakes, you don't need to have seen the original in order to appreciate, or not appreciate in some cases. In fact, it's also one of the few to even have a sequel in development, which Stone is said to be locked in for, as are McNamara and Gillespie as writer and director respectively, so it's likely we haven't seen the last of Stone's take on Cruella de Vil just yet. Until then, you can stream Cruella now on Disney+, Plus or rent or buy it from most other online stores. And there you go, that's my list of the five essential Emma Stone movies you should watch, or at least make notes to watch, before you see her latest career-defining turn in Poor Things this week. Speaking of which, I've been putting it off all episode, but let's now get right into my review. So I saw Poor Things back in October during the BFI London Film Festival. This was at a public screening. I did have the option to go to an earlier press screening, the only one on offer for this particular film at the festival, but unfortunately it was at the exact same time as another film, so I went for the other one. And I think I lucked out because from what I heard about this film's press screening, it was a jam-packed house. I think some people were even turned away once it reached capacity, whereas my one was a lot less busy and even had some spare seats scattered across the auditorium. But I am glad that I at least got to see Poor Things with an audience because it is just excellent. A wondrous and imaginative work of art that brings out the best in both its star Emma Stone and its director Yorgos Lanthimos. Now I talked about the plot earlier so I won't repeat myself too much, but basically Stone is Bella Baxter, a woman brought back to life by scientist Willem Dafoe with the brain of her unborn baby implanted inside of her, and the film just charts her progress going from this literally infantilized being into a woman who learns more about herself and her place in the world. Now, more than ever, Yorgos Lanthimos leans into his hybrid brand of surrealism and absurdism to create a dazzling world that I truly wish the likes of Terry Gilliam and Tim Burton still had the capacity to create, here presenting an intentionally overblown version of Victorian society that is rich with eccentricity, including some lavishly designed sets and costumes that are eye-catching to say the least, while Robbie Ryan's wide-angle and occasionally fish-eyed lens cinematography playfully distorts the properness in which its larger-than-life characters are expected to inhabit. 
there's just so much to marvel at in the backgrounds of all these different places we go throughout the film, from the whimsically weird stuff around Dr. Godwin Baxter's house, like various animal hybrids, including one with a duck's head on a dog's body, and even one with a pig's head on the body of a chicken, to the various steampunk designs of gondola lifts and extravagant cruise lines. And it's such an imaginative piece of filmmaking, one that Lanthimos goes the full hog with in embracing its utter insanity, to where chapter titles are accompanied by some truly surreal imagery that could only come from the dreams of a highly creative madman. Meanwhile, you have Emma Stone delivering a kind of central performance that has never been executed in quite as lucrative or even as impressive a fashion. Because Bella Baxter is a character whose childlike naivete could easily grow tiresome, or misguided to the point of going full R-word to quote Tropic Thunder, if an actor like Stone wasn't able to fully encapsulate her rapidly evolving state, going from the mindset of an unruly toddler who throws temper tantrums and smashes things on the floor, to a more articulate and steadfast person within mere scenes. And it's an all-encompassing performance that Stone pulls off here, one that can be incredibly physical as well as emotionally taxing, as you see this person develop right in front of your eyes as she absorbs everything from social cues to the joys of masturbation and full-on penetrative sex. But the actor amazingly keeps a steady head as she reveals newer and more interesting layers to this character as the film goes along, ensuring your interest is held at all times. And I have to say, even after highlighting all the great work she's done over the years, this is perhaps the best work Stone has yet done, as she shines among a cast that also includes a hilariously campy Mark Ruffalo and a soulful turn by Willem Dafoe in some effective makeup, with some memorable supporting turns by Rami Youssef, Jared Carmichael and Christopher Abbott. The absurdist style of Lanthimos and the daring performance of Stone both turn poor things into the kind of cinematic fairy tale that precious few filmmakers dare to make nowadays, and I'm so pleased that such a beautifully demented masterpiece like this not only exists, but holds your attention for all of its 141 minute runtime, only threatening to feel past its limit during a sudden turn late in the movie that adds an extra 10 minutes during a reasonable endpoint, and cements a brand new director-actor collaboration that has it within them to be the wild oldest and strangest of the lot, but also one of the most imaginative duos you could come across in modern filmmaking. So yeah, Poor Things is a full five-star meal, top quality cuisine if ever there was one, and once again you can find it in cinemas from Friday the 12th of January. So for a lot of reviews I cover on this show, many of them will be films that came out the previous week, because I don't always have the chance to see them early via press or festival screenings. I often just see them the week they become available to everyone else. And the one I have for you this week that was indeed from last week is Netflix's new survival drama, Society of the Snow. This is the film directed by J.A. Bayona, who also did The Orphanage, The Impossible, and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Now, if you weren't around to hear me talk about it in last week's movie menu, the gist of the film is that it recreates the infamous incident in October 1972, when a plane flying from Uruguay to Chile with 45 passengers on board, including a young rugby team, suddenly crash lands in the middle of the Andes Mountains, killing a whole bunch of people instantly and leaving the few survivors to make it through the harsh, snowy environment. And as food runs low with little to no sign of imminent rescue, they are forced to eat the bodily remains of those who have died and do whatever it takes to make it through their horrible ordeal. So this is a film that's been pretty unanimously acclaimed by critics, with some calling it one of Bayona's best films, and yeah, it is pretty powerful stuff. I thought this was a devastating yet hopeful look at the power of the human spirit, which is interesting because this particular story has been the basis for a lot of other films in the past, most notably Frank Marshall's Alive, which starred Ethan Hawke, Josh Hamilton, and John Malkovich in prominent roles. 
But unlike that film, Society of the Snow has zero desire to water it down for wider audiences, taking an approach not unlike Paul Greengrass's United 93, where the cast is predominantly made up of completely unknown Uruguayan and Argentine actors with nary a previous credit to their name. And as it did in United 93, the lack of a recognisable figure among the cast is a major benefit, as it allows the viewer to really absorb the emotional impact of the increasingly bleak scenario, without getting distracted by any star wattage, and allowing Bayona, who also co-wrote the script, to cut right to the chase with some of these real-life characters, and dig deep into what made them human in this harsh and unforgiving climate, which makes many of the later emotional moments all the more impactful, something that might have been lost if they were played by more recognisable actors. The filmmaking here is sweeping and sometimes unsettling, as we often glide over and across the snow-blanketed domain, which points out just how seemingly endless this landscape is, while some disorientating close-up shots of people in distress emphasise the growing psychological trauma as they face their own morality, as they chew into their former friends and acquaintances, and at times it even gives off the vibe of a horror film, not unlike Bayona's debut feature The Orphanage, especially as the cinematography, editing, makeup effects, and Michael Giacchino's foreboding score all home in on the horrifying sense of death that lingers even in the quietest of moments, putting you right in the middle of it all with an impeccable ease. But as bleak as the film gets, it ultimately finds bright spots of optimism to keep a close eye on, especially as these survivors refuse to let imminent death stand in the way of their indomitable spirit, and Bayona keeps that momentum going with a triumphant march toward a bittersweet conclusion, one that is genuinely emotional and pays profound respect to those who survived and those who were lost along the way, because ultimately it's a film that celebrates just how unwavering we can be as a deeply flawed species, for even when trapped in the middle of nowhere there is always a sense of hope that something can be done to escape from it, and Bayona's film powerfully captures that spirit as it depicts these survivors as real people forced into unspeakable circumstances, which makes it a somewhat uplifting film to watch, even after all the grisly cannibalism. While it might be tough for some viewers to stomach, like the actual pieces of human meat consumed throughout, Society of the Snow is impressive stuff that should invigorate your human spirit in ways you might not have expected, and it earns four stars from me, which makes it a dish you'll be hungry for more of. And that, folks, just about does it for this week's episode of Film Feeder. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you've had fun listening to me serve up all this film goodness. And if you did, then please make sure you're following it on whichever platform you're listening to it on. And I'd really appreciate it if you left some good feedback and shared it with anyone you might think would enjoy a good helping of this podcast. Also, don't forget to give us a follow on our social media pages, which I mentioned earlier, and also our Patreon page, patreon.com slash filmfeeder, where for as little as £3 a month, you can listen to podcast episodes a whole day before anywhere else, as well as being able to submit questions for upcoming Q&A sessions, and even vote or suggest topics to cover in future episodes. And finally, of course, make sure you visit the Film Feeder website at www.filmfeeder.co.uk, which is the only home of all my written content from the past 10 years and beyond, and is also about to get a whole new upgrade in the next few days, and I'll be talking about that a little bit more on next week's episode, when I'll also be discussing the legacy of the modern teen classic Mean Girls, just before the anticipated new musical version arrives next week. Until then, I'm Jack Martin, your film chef extraordinaire, ready to whet your appetite for film every single week. That's all for now. See you next time. <laughs>